it gave me a different sense of being. I think for me, being homeless, it was more like I just don't care. You know, you find a place to sleep, you find a place that's warm, you get, you know, enough materials to stay warm and to get a good night's sleep and find some comfort. And then, you know, the police come along because you got to move on now. You got to, you're wandering around the night with all your stuff. Uh, or, um, the owner comes along in the building and says, you're, you're, you know, trespassing, get out or, you know, various different things. But for me, it was more or less, wow. Okay. I can stay in a hotel. Wow. Really? This is great. You know, and, and it, it just changed my attitude from, you know, okay, I don't care to, Hmm. You know, I remember when I could take a shower when I wanted to. I remember when I could use the toilet when I had to. I remember when I could go in and out of my room when I wanted to. You know, wow, what am I doing? I was thinking about it every day, about me life in the streets, you know. I just wanted to change my life around, you know. I wanted to get off the street. Oh, I wanted to get off the streets, you know, and I didn't have that confidence in me while I was on the streets until I went to the motel and started thinking. It, went, it was clean, you know, we've got a double bed, we've got a TV that we don't usually have, and we've got a shower where we could, you know, have our own privacy and own, own you know, our own privacy business, you know, it was quiet, it was mad, it wasn't public toilet. You know, it wasn't a toilet in a restaurant where we had to go take it, you know. It was our own little toilet. I mean, it was mad, we did, you know, you can do our own thing. But then, yeah, when it started, just, that was at the start. But then when it get gotten serious and serious, more serious with the homeless people coming in and out, there was rooms with smashed TVs, rooms with you know, holes in them, you know, like remotes that were missing. So, yeah, no, but it was real, real good to be sitting in a, you know, high-class bucket motel. It was good. I mean, the fact that there were five-kilometre restrictions on how far people could travel, the fact that there were increased police on the street, I mean, th those were sort of major barriers, I can imagine, for some people attempting to access NSP equipment. For those who actually did do it hard during the pandemic with mental health and drugs and whatever else... Um, yeah, I just would have had a lot more support, honestly. Like, that's what a lot of other people needed, is a lot of support. And, yeah, that just wasn't there. So, yeah, I'd, I'd have a lot of support in place, honestly, yeah. Welcome to Episode 2 of Homeless in Hotels. Health services and peer voices in the COVID-19 pandemic. In this episode, we will meet some new peers and hear their opportunities and struggles in accessing services during Melbourne's strict lockdowns. We will also hear from service workers on how service delivery changed. We hope you enjoy this episode titled... 10,000 beds.
Hi, my name's Sarah. I'm from the Western Homelessness Network, and that's a network of all the homelessness and family violence funded services that work in Melbourne's West. We meet to gather regularly to coordinate the homelessness and family violence service system for people experiencing homelessness in the West. Quite early on, services were given approval to spend more money putting people in hotels while the government worked out how to manage the situation. But then in May, the Department of Families, Fairness and Housing released new guidelines to all the homelessness services saying that we would now have a formal response called the Hotel Emergency Response Team and that all the homelessness services in an area had to come together and work out what that response would look like. And then my role around the state was given the role of coordinating that group. So we had to start meeting weekly to plan how do we better coordinate responses to people in hotels. We knew very quickly work would change, but every day there was a different bit of information about how it would change. But the very first thing that changed was when lockdown hit, services had to suddenly work out how could they meet with clients how could they how could they protect clients and workers and provide support appropriately so and and each service there were there weren't direct guidelines so each service did that a little bit differently some services kept doing face-to-face work but they would meet people in parks and in open spaces other people would do it but they wore masks and so every every day there was different information about what personal protective equipment Um, workers needed. There was workers madly trying to work out how to get resources to people who are experiencing homelessness. And all of a sudden there were people rushing to supermarkets, there wasn't enough food around, people were more isolated, so trying to work out how to get some material aid to consumers was really challenging. Yeah, so it was a continual moving feast. And then, as I said, everyone was experiencing anxiety. A lot of people who were experiencing homelessness had huge anxiety because they were in insecure accommodation. So how would they lock down safely? We all started working from home. So service providers that were used to sharing information about a resource or bouncing around how to help someone in a particular situation were all suddenly sitting in their own homes, you know, having endless meetings on Zoom and trying to work out new ways of communicating with with clients. So workers were trialling WhatsApp, they were texting, they were on the phone, they were Zooming with clients. And and all of that meant learning new technology and finding out what people's preferences were. So every day there was something new to deal with. Trying to process those fast enough that, that workers could actually go out and do their jobs effectively was really challenging. The bulk of the hotels used were in the city and in some hotels there would be as many as 100 people who had previously been homeless. The feedback that we've had from consumers about that experience was that the experience in those bigger hotels was scary and chaotic often. During the pandemic there were so many people referring into hotels. People were referring into other regions, other service systems were putting people in hotels and so it wasn't possible to coordinate who went into which hotel. 
which also created chaos in terms of trying to support people in hotels because we might have five different support services going in to support different groups of people, which meant that residents of hotels were getting different information depending which service they were in contact with. And some services were able to organise things like meals deliveries and other services didn't know about that. So there was a real, I imagine from the other end, real perceived inequities. And services have different levels of funding. So consumers were getting different information about we'll pay for all your accommodation or you have to pay a third of the accommodation or we'll pay for a week and then you pay for a week. Uh, And again, things were moving so fast and, and levels of money across services were so different. It wasn't possible to coordinate that in any way. My name's James. I'm a drug and alcohol worker um, in harm reduction programs across a couple of organisations. And in that role, I've worked a lot of the meal and syringe desks, as well as doing mobile outreach, delivering syringes. So a lot of that work was just driving, you know, we'd get phone calls, we'd be asked to bring needles to people and we'd deliver them. And yeah, as I said, sometimes, you know, the people in the hotels were very upfront in that process. Uh, sometimes we would have to do it more covertly and meet with people around the corner to protect their privacy. So it just, I guess, varied depending on the individual circumstances, yeah, what people would need. And then just yeah, trying to, to sort of assist where we could have you know, conversations with people. One of the, I guess, the other challenges for people was that a lot of drug services weren't doing intakes of people as well. So a lot of people who were wanting to give up or cut down on their drug use weren't able to get into services like Windana, Odyssey, some of the rehabilitation programs because they were having to cap how many people were in there. Um, They were trying not to bring new people into these, you know, because they're accommodation sites. So you're suddenly having to bring people in who then, you know, potentially expose the, the um, clients who are already there to COVID. People aren't wearing masks in, you know, these settings um, because of their homes while they're in rehab. So, yeah, so people were having to wait longer for drug treatment, so treatment. And so part of what we were trying to do was to keep people going with harm reduction measures while they were seeking to quit. So that was hard. So there was a process in place that was the rough sleepers aren't allowed to be sleeping on the street, so they need to be put in hotel accommodation. So that's the direction. But then there's lots of pieces that have to happen in in between. Also, it's going on the assumption that everybody wants to stay in a hotel or that everybody feels safe in a hotel or that around, you know, individual beliefs on how people engage with services in the first place. So not, not everybody... Not everybody was up for that. Not everybody who we worked with thought that that was a good idea. And then that involves, yeah, the other barriers, which are barriers that we always have working with our cohort is like they might not have phones, so then how do they how do they have the phone referral? And then we support the phone referral and then maybe the times don't line up or that person isn't there at that time. So those kinds of things all had to be in consideration as well. Yeah, my name's Rosie. I'm a mental health nurse. I'm based uh, in the city and my role is 
to work with clients. They have a mental health diagnosis. They are currently homeless or have a history of homelessness or at risk of homelessness. I guess there was, yeah, a lot of information around and we knew that, yeah, it would sort of change the way that we did our work as well. And we also knew that because of the the mental health picture, but also sort of the sometimes the physical health picture of lots of the clients that we work with, they're more sort of vulnerable to like, I guess like uh, chronic illness physically as well. So, you know, probably don't have the best immune systems to be prepared for like a virus like that. So we were already sort of aware and considering about the vulnerability of our clients, particularly the rough sleepers as well. But even the ones that we don't have that are rough sleeping are sometimes living in sort of shared accommodation as well. So that's obviously an issue too, because in the crisis accommodation space, there's a lot of a lot of vulnerable people in one spot. So also being aware of that too. It was really varied depending on which hotel you were in and what services were available. So obviously sort of a little bit of the way through, they kind of realised that they needed to be on-site support. So they sort of made teams that were on-site support for different hotels to address people's needs. And that was like health and psychosocial and sort of whatever was needed at that time. That was great. That was great for us because there were, and I guess from, I know like amongst a health like worker sort of perspective, there were people, because people were in the hotels, they were able to receive sort of maybe quite intensive support if they hadn't really had it before and maybe some health, health considerations and mental health considerations that they never had before. And as a result, I know this was everyone's experience, sort of the mental health picture with our homelessness population became like more and more and more obvious, like the connection between that, I think, as well. So I had one client and she, her experience of the hotel response is extremely positive. She just describes it as, yes, in a, re- in a really positive light. She really felt secure in a hotel, so sort of the, the doorman kind of people checking in with you actually from her experience uh, and from her trauma experience made her feel safe. And they, she was at one of the hotels where they had a lot of staff that were there all the time sort of providing support and she really benefited from that. And she really loved it. And she describes that the hotel sort of experience made her feel quite glamorous. She enjoyed having, you know, these sort of services around her and this kind of security around her and this kind of safety around her. So, yeah, she was at one of the hotels where there was a lot of services on site and she was able to access those services. And if anything, it sort of like increased her support rather than sort of decreased it. But then, yeah, I had other clients in hotels that were, yeah, maybe like a bit more further out of the city. There wasn't any sort of support staff there. Maybe they had been unsuccessful at sort of at previous hotels and kind of ended up at like the, you know, the last line kind of hotels where it was less supported. That was definitely the case. Yeah, it was varied, very varied between hotels.
It actually took me a week before I moved into a hotel. That was the only lifestyle I knew, living on the streets, you know. That's how I survived. You know, living on the streets for seven, eight years, you know, then all of a sudden someone wants you to move into uh, a motel or a room, whatever. It's a different lifestyle completely, you know, like, sort of, at first it sort of took my freedom away from me, you know, and I just couldn't go for a walk when I wanted or how far I wanted to go, and, but it made me think while I was there too. I was in um, uh, a Suffolk Comfort Hotel. I was there for roughly three to four weeks. And then I moved into City Hotel in Spencer Street. I was there for another three weeks. And then I was out at um, Essendon Motel. I was there for two weeks before I got me house at um, Leventon. I, I believe that in a hotel it's just like a house, you know, it's, it makes you think, yeah, you know, you, you can do it, you can get off the streets and you can have a roof over your head, you know, and that just built my confidence way up, you know. If I if I didn't have anyone to talk to, I'd know where I'll be today. That's the honest truth. I wouldn't know where. I just I'm very grateful for people that actually listen to me and yeah, agree with some things, you know. Yeah. Mainly St. Vincent de Paul. They're very helpful. I, I love them so much. You know. They had an ear for me. They didn't judge me or anything. You know. They let me speak my mind. You know, it was good. Like They opened their arms and they're like a family to me now. You know. yeah, it's good. I love it. If I didn't have the support I've got now, I'd, I'd be back on the streets. I know I would. I would have less uh, confidence in myself. Um, and it's the only life I knew. Now, being a, um, a schizophrenia, you know, hearing voices and that, you know, people don't understand, you know. But I'm just grateful I've got all the support I've got now that's behind me. Yeah. In between three buildings is called an alley. So <laughs> in between these two buildings, I've made a little cubby house out of a bit of cardboard and that. And it's not too bad, but it's not the best. But I keep it clean and... And um, the people that know that I'm there, it's the units are, are flats there, and they're, they're happy that I'm there because they've already told me off. No one's told me off yet, and they've given me like little food parcels and all that, and I've said thank you and thanks. 
wrote them a little happy birthday things back again to them. And like my heart goes out to them. Like wow, they're real genuine, caring people. Like you know, and it's, it's, it makes your spirits come up a bit because they, they see you as a, as, you know, this guy is. They've never seen me. I don't even know what they look like. Was, but, that, that, but they must be having respect for me to do that. So I've got to keep up respect as well. And I keep the areas clean, of course, and um, keep my ears open so no, no one's doing any shifty business in that, around the area. No one's trying to pinch their push bikes or cars and that. But, you know, it's amazing how these people actually, like, are being good to me. And... Um, yeah, there's still good people out there, and I think 90% of the people are good people. But um, I mean, 10% work in government. I'll catch up with my friend and um, you know, have a puff or whatever, or bring her back to my room, have a puff there. But then, what am I doing? It's just boring. So it slowed a little bit of the drugs down, because there's nothing to do. Um, but I know in the other rooms there's parties going on. In the elevator there'll be the text of marks, party times, people are written down on the walls, uh, little bits of paper put here and there, come to this room, come to this room. And you can tell people were having a bit of um, parties and getting on with each other. Even though they weren't bringing uh, guests, the guests were already in the hotel. Their own, the people that were in the hotel were, you know, instead of doing what the government was doing, they were doing their own. They were getting together and having their own party and groups and that. And, um, yeah, I didn't want to be a part of that. And, you know, it was a part of time for me to get, like, sort myself out a bit. And that worked. But, yeah, I was a bit angry at the state government for not giving us a proper exit. Just, like, that's it, bang, it's finished, see you later. And where I went back to where I was sleeping, it's funny because the people there thought I was gone and they were happy that I was um, in housing. And when I came back, they were, like, sad. They go, oh, shit, we're sorry that you're back here again. And they were giving me, like, cakes because it was my birthday last week. They gave me cake and that. And they were happy that I was back because I was a nice person. But they were also sad that, hey. And they, they've written bits of paper for me to read and saying that the state government should do something about it more. And if you want us to help you with calling the people. And so they're now realising that, the issues of homeless people, and they're good people, but um, I think it's opened their eyes as well, that, hey, this is a big problem. And I've been on the streets for on and off probably about five years, but the last six months has been full on, and, um, yeah. Yeah, well, at the time, also there was a curfew, so you couldn't go for a walk whenever you wanted to. But it was um, just go get a coffee at 7-Eleven and have a cigarette, walk around the block and come back in. And then, you know, watch a bit of TV and back to bed. And then you don't realise, but 10 minutes later you wake up and do it again. Or a couple of hours later you do it again. And then um, during the day you just walk around, you know, because you're bored, nothing to do. And that's why, like, if they had those um, activities or plans or something where people can do and be more positive uh, support, whether they had groups of people come and visit the people at the hotels and, uh, like, support workers, get everyone together, or whether it's 
10 people or 100 people in one room or five or six. And the people that want to do their activities or help or support can get to it. And I reckon there's a big missed opportunity with the government, the state government, that they should have done something about it. And now all these homeless people are back on the streets, even worse, feeling like, hey, we got robbed, we got rolled. And I don't think it's about the corona and all that. It was just about maybe just locking up, making it look good. Whether the papers take photos of the streets of Melbourne, they look how clean Melbourne looks now. There's no, sorry to say, no junkies, no homeless, no alcoholics, and streets look nice and clean. And um, yeah, I think we just got pushed under the carpet a bit. Like towards the end, you just everyone was like, I can see people and me as well. Shit, what's going to happen now? But I have to go back to my own little uh, cave again and shit, you know, organise this, that, that. And yeah, whether we should have just had phone calls. All right, you bring up this place and then, you know, happy with accommodation. But happy with accommodation, but not up in whoop whoop. You know, if I'm living in the city area, don't give me something that's in Frankston. I'd rather stay where I am now, you know, in my little cave. You're giving us areas where we're not comfortable with, or there's no services there that help me. All my services are in this area. My doctors, my you know, friends that help me in that. Where if you go to another area, all you're going to do is you're going to bump into the drug dealers again because you're angry and anxious and you're going to go back on the drugs. Well, now I'm off the drugs and going for a hard time, but trying to stay with positive people and, and find the right people, the friends that are good again. And um, it's hard work, but once you've got that positive thing in your head that drives you to, to do this, it's good. Like, you know, I want to catch up with my family again, my mum again, my son. And we're from the ice. Nah, well, I'm going to be thinking of the ice every day. There's a big thing with our lockdown. A lot of uh, a lot of our um, a lot of us Aboriginals uh, couldn't do a lot of the things that we that we're used to doing. The Aboriginal Health Service is one of the big places where you know a lot of us go and meet, and it's doctors for us Koorie's. So yeah, it was a, it was a good place. Yeah, and I, I know a lot of Aboriginals who did it really really hard. It wasn't just everyone, but a, mo- a lot of Aboriginals I know. A lot of my uncles and aunties did a lot of hard time during the pandemic. One, because they were targeted as well, but a lot of the medical services went open and a lot of the, um, like the Advancement League over in Thornbury, they usually do food parcels and stuff for us crews that wasn't even open. Everywhere was just closed. A lot of services that we people were linked in with or was wanting to, a lot of them were even closed or uh, over the phone appointments or sometimes it all just stopped for good until the pandemic was over. Yeah, a lot of lot of services were unable to do the usual things they were able to do. So it affected a lot of different people, even with Centrelink and stuff. A lot of people got cut off their payments. Yeah, there was a lot of different things because of the lockdown. A lot of places just wasn't able to do their normal hours or their normal routines with uh, what their clients or you know people that were helping. So. Yeah, I couldn't go to appointments. I'm linked in with the Victorian Aboriginal Health Service, so for my psych. 
Yeah, I literally couldn't go anywhere. It was just a matter of like getting – if I was to get pulled by the police, um, I'd be way out of my um, – however many metres you were allowed away from wherever you were staying. So, um, yeah, I actually stopped my medication during that whole pandemic because I couldn't get a script because of the lockdown. So, yeah, it was that's why my mental health kind of shot up and that's when drugs sort of came involved because – Medication wasn't really an option. Launch housing were always there and the salvos were always there. Like I remember salvos coming there if you needed help with food and that. We speak to a Salvation Army worker. Like there was a lot of services and like launch housing were help trying to help people to get out of the hotels to go get a private rental or, or, or a rental house. So they, yeah, it was good. Like there was always services, people just never used them. Yeah, I was going to the living room. It's in Hosea Lane, just near Flinders Street. Um, it's called it's a homeless. Uh, it's a youth. It's called Youth Projects for youth people, people for under twenty five. I was going there, and because they got foot patrol, and because um, I'll be honest with you, I was I was using the needles for my my methamphetamine because I got fed when I was twelve, thirteen. So yeah, I was going there to get my clean needles and all that, and they, they were doing it perfectly in that. But when the pandemic came, obviously they had to stop their foot patrol. And they can't come out to outreach and do all the outreaches, so it was kind of hard. And like people were just running around picking up dirt, you know. Like, but now living rooms, living rooms got the foot patrol, so it's good, you know. It's good that they've got services like that around around Melbourne and the CBD. But they should have had it around the pandemic because there was just a lot, a lot going around. So yeah. Probably the only one thing I would say: be prepared for the, the drug newses. Like at least have something up for the the newses and the the substance newses. Like at least, like all the workers were fine, like because they always got workers and all that, and they had you know extra security and that. But I reckon the main thing is because you're bringing in homeless people, you need to understand that there's a lot of drug newses as being homeless. You don't know their backstory, you don't know their their past and that. So the you know we need to have some like services there for you know the needles or you know the overdoses. You know, and all the all the crazy. You need at least some service there to help them kind of people. You know what I mean? Like they weren't getting help. There was only one hotel that I know I seen with drug news help, and they had yellow bins, and that was at the front of the, the at the front of the door, the sliding doors. Yeah, one only had bins, and it was sitting there. You know, no shame, no judgment, because they knew they had drug drug newses coming in, and it was the Alto right next to King Street, next to Southern Cross. And every time you walk there now, you'll see it. You're walking straight through the sliding doors, you'll see probably three, four yellow bins sitting there ready for someone who is going to go in and use it. Like, you know, like if I was walking in, I would grab it because you need yellow bin for if, if for your needles. But that was the only hotel I've ever seen that provided yellow bins. We, we wrote a, a report in the past called The Crisis in Crisis about the fact that there isn't appropriately funded crisis accommodation in Melbourne. In the whole of Melbourne, there are 423 crisis beds 
And in one year across the north and west alone, we had to find 10,000 beds. So even pre-pandemic, we were dealing with a system that was completely inappropriate to the need. So we had already been using a lot of hotels, sadly, usually low-end hotels because of the inadequate funding to purchase them. And when the pandemic hit, the two access point services said they were seeing four times as many people per day as they saw before the pandemic. Before the pandemic, they already couldn't speak with everyone who came to their services. We already said they were about two or three workers each behind. And so people were already not getting an adequate response. But when the numbers went through the roof, and they also had to move to telephone work. So this is all all people ringing on the telephone. Uh, it meant that although we'd been told there was more money available for hotels, there was no one who had the time or capacity to actually go out and see the hotels or negotiate with them. So services were just r- madly ringing around hotels trying to find places that would take people. Prior to the pandemic, a lot of hotels wouldn't take referrals from the homelessness sector, which was another reason we were left using the low-end hotels. One advantage at the start of the pandemic was when all the tourists went away, more of the hotels were happy to take referrals from the homelessness system. So certainly the range of hotels we could access improved, but the demand increased so much too. So I looked at, at an average week. In an average week, our two services were coordinating people in 38 different hotels. They had 400 households across 38 different hotels and it really was quite chaotic because um, our role was to try and provide support to those people in hotels so they weren't just isolated. We don't have enough support workers so only 40% of the people in hotels got support which meant some people were there for months and months without contact with anyone except with the access point service that was advising them whether their stay could be extended. The other problem was the government advised that there was additional funding, but that would come in dribs and drabs. So we'd hear there's additional funding for three months, but it was only this much money, and then services would go into deficit, and then the government would say, oh, we can pay back your deficits, and now you can put more people back in hotels. So actually... People were often being put in hotels for two weeks at a time and then the money would run out and then they'd have to self-fund for another two weeks and then we'd hear about more money, they might get another week. And so there was this constant, homelessness workers said they felt like they were becoming travel agents, just spending their time booking and rebooking hotels, not actually having time to support people. Of the people we surveyed, only 15% were accommodated in self-contained facilities. The ones who were had a much more positive experience than the ones who weren't. Everybody talked about isolation. Um, Everyone who responded to our survey said that their mental health declined through that period. And we, we did get a lot of feedback that, by and large, hotels are better than the awful private rooming house accommodation that we've also previously relied on. But only 50% of people said the time they spent in the hotels was a positive experience. And just over a third said they felt unsafe or unsupported or that the facilities were inadequate to their needs. 
a lot of these places weren't really set up to live in. You know, these hotels were where tr- travellers, you know, for whatever reason coming into town might stay a night or a couple of nights. And so they're not really set up to be in for an extended period of time, um, very limited facilities. Uh, we're talking about like providing people with food and that's kind of been always a bit of a question, you know, you want some food or what kind of cooking facilities have you got? And, you know, some people might, they might have a microwave. Yeah, they might have a kettle. That's about it, you know, no cooktop, maybe not even a toaster. So that kind of really limits people's ability to like look after themselves when they can't actually make food. My name's Andy. I uh, work in a needle syringe program. I've been doing that for just over 20 years now. It is uh, really about working with whoever comes in the door about whatever they want to talk about and generally speaking, yeah, providing people with injecting equipment and talking to them about how their day's going, how their life's going. These kind of lots of small hotel rooms in the same building is just is just maybe only a tiny step up above like what a boarding house might be like and yeah there's certainly hotel rooms that you don't have your own bathroom and you've got a shared bathroom and so it's yeah, it's not it's not a huge difference it's not really a home you know it's still just a stopgap yeah and like I was saying before like it's not it's not somewhere you can cook necessarily it's um you're not necessarily hanging out with people who you would choose to hang out with in terms of that kind of stuff um and you don't really get to choose where you are you know you just get put somewhere been injecting illicit drugs for more than 25 years and I'm personally I'm very open about being an injecting drug user so you know like I think that because of the society we live in and a lot of uh, a lot of the attitudes in kind of broader mainstream society towards injecting drug use particularly heroin use which is my drug of choice are extremely discriminating. A lot of drug users sort of take on this, take on, I guess, the worst aspects of self-loathing and self-oppression, self-stigma. So, I mean, I try and actively undo that sort of social conditioning, you know? Like, I don't feel any guilt about being a drug user. And I guess the issues that specifically impact on my life in terms of my illicit drug use are a result of drug prohibition and the drug war in terms of you know health outcomes but more significantly being a kind of crimi- being a criminalized person i am not currently on a pharmacotherapy program at that time i was on a pharmacotherapy program and i think my doctor increased my takeaways so that i didn't have to come to the pharmacy quite as often but I know that there were some changes to health department policy, which were, you know, only basically took a pandemic to achieve, like, which um, involved, you know, uh, if someone was like at, you know, hardcore sort of quarantine stay at home orders because they'd been maybe like in a tier one exposure site or had a close contact that was COVID positive, And so that person basically couldn't leave the house. 
other people were able to pick up their pharmacotherapies for them, you know, like, and it was pretty, you know, great that, you know, there was that possibility for people. But again, like, why had that not existed for, you know, <laughs> for for many decades beforehand, you know, like, particularly when you consider that a lot of injecting drug users, heroin users particularly, are not always in a state where they're able to, um, you know, go to the chemist, yeah? Maybe someone's got like a chronic health condition or maybe someone's sort of in severe withdrawal, whatever, you know? Like um, it's not, yeah, it's not always so easy for people. For me personally, aside from using the MSER facility and GP services like through North Richmond Community Health, Personally, I don't access services because primarily the services that would most improve my life, for example, like a prescription for hydromorphone or heroin or diluted, are simply not available, you know. And similarly, I think there's issues with the way that many services are delivered, you know. Like I think that, as I mentioned before, I think that services from marginalised and criminalised people should actually be run by people from our communities and you know, not just people with so-called like lived experience, but actually in terms of like, you know, drug use stuff with people who are actually still using. And I think that one of the reasons this doesn't happen is, you know, due to respectability politics. And as I mentioned before, you know, like the kind of deep-seated self-oppression and self-stigma that, you know, many, many drug users, unless we sort of choose to undo that, like, you know, are subject to and think that's like also, you know, in terms of kind of services, there's this perception that current drug users are untrustworthy and unreliable and you kind of aren't redeemed or in, indeed employable, you know, like unless you've sort of been through rehab and are working through the 12-step NA program. So, you know, the fact that current drug users aren't employed by services, I think is really problematic So it makes me, you know, far less interested in engaging with services. And I think also that, you know, the fact that, like, you know, current drug users aren't employed is a sort of, it's ultimately a sort of reflection of many of the attitudes that services, uh, attitudes that many of these kind of health promotion services holds towards drug users, you know, whether that's explicitly stated or just sort of, you know, implied, you know. Also, I think that in many kind of services for drug users, right, there's like, there's no explicit focus on advocating for, say, prescription heroin or decriminalizing drugs. You know, and, and those are kind of the primary policy and legislative changes that would actually improve many, many people's lives. You've been listening to episode two of Homeless in Hotels, health, services and peer voices in the COVID-19 pandemic. Coming up on episode three. I mean, I think a key thing to know is that, you know, before the pandemic, we already knew that people who were sleeping rough were more likely to come into contact with the law because they're living their private lives in a public space. And so I think it was clearly exacerbated by the pandemic because there was this whole new raft of laws and regulations 
that were inevitably going to impact people who were experiencing homelessness and didn't have, you know, a safe home to go to. So I think really we knew that the people who were already disproportionately impacted were going to be more at risk of legal issues during the pandemic. It's now really bizarre that every time there's a lockdown, people get hotel accommodation and then they get thrown out on the street again and then they get hotel accommodation and then they get thrown out on the street again. And it's yeah, it, it's it's this bizarre kind of set of circumstances because what the hotel accommodation program kind of proves is that we can house the homeless and that they're, they're really the fact that we have such a large homeless population is absurd. We're very slow at trying to provide any sort of ongoing, you know, there's now this homeless to homes program that is now trying to get people uh, from the hotels into more long-term accommodation. That's a very slow process. And yet, the, but then the fact that we can very quickly just provide all these hotels and then throw people out of them again and then re-provide them does show that the government can act really quickly and they can act really quickly when they want to, when it becomes about uh, trying to protect the health care of, of sections of the population that I guess they're probably more concerned about with as far as voters and so forth. And you know, man, that's a sceptical point of view on it, but there is a certain level to which, yeah, they, they you know, disenfranchise people, they, they don't deal with them until they start to impact on everyone else. And then suddenly, oh, yes, we can provide hotels for everyone. Like I said, the hotels are great. I think if it was to happen again, do the hotels. Sweet. But there needed to be more support around it, more support for people in there. Maybe if there was a bit more rules and a bit more people could do this and that. But again, you're bringing people off the streets. They're not used to that that authority. So I don't know whether that would work. But I'm huge on the exit plan. There should have been an exit plan. There needs to be an exit plan still to this day. Um, And I think that would be the thing that would need to change if it was to happen again. (laughs) 